Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. And guess what? I'm Peter Switzer. On today's show, I find out what's wrong and what will be right with Australian rugby, with former Wallaby and Super Rugby commentator Rod Kafer, who's also a high-flying finance guy. This is a very insightful interview into what's going on in the world of rugby. I guess you could say in the troubled world of rugby. Then I talked to one of Australia's great wine experts, Andrew Kayard, who, among other things, has created a, a wine film about the Chinese raiding the French Bordeaux area. That film was uh, an award-winning documentary narrated by none other than Russell Crowe. And then we talk to Steve Fletcher, who tells us, he comes from uh, Drake International, and he tells us that, I tell you what, working from home, there could be problems. And if you have problems working from home, you fall over, you trip, you do something wrong, it could be your boss who has to pay the price. Well, I'm joined by Rod Kafer, who's the director of Prime Service for Invas Global. But more importantly for most of us, Rod is a ex-Wallaby. Uh, he's a commentator on the sideline for Super Rugby. And uh, he's someone I'm really looking forward to talking to. Rod, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Rod, um, there's, there's lots of questions I want to ask you, but this is the question that comes up nearly every time I see you on the side and hear you on the sideline of a rugby game. And I've always wanted to ask this question. How can you retain such good sportsmanship when you're looking at referees making such great mistakes (laughs) in rugby? How do you do that? Have you always been a man in self-control? Well, look, one of the great vagaries of rugby is... um is not the 30 players on the field. It's that one individual with a whistle. Oh, no. And when your um, prospects for victory and sometimes your livelihood depends on a man with a whistle in the middle, you become very patient and forgiving <laughs> over the years whilst um, I've, I've from time to time become frustrated with referees. You mm. understand that the, um, the vagaries of refereeing is such that um, it creates great theatre for mm. the game. And it, yeah. and it is part of the theatre, part of the enjoyment of the game. Yeah. Well, how you... Look, I've got to say, I both admire you and hate you simultaneously. Because sometimes <laughs> I like to say, who was that South African referee who always used to pick on the Waratahs? And he, he had some... Uh, Jonathan Kaplan yeah, was Jonathan his name. Ka- yeah, sure. Kaplan. Johnny Kaplan. Yeah. He's a terrific fellow. I, yeah. I used to get on well with jo- Jonathan. He refereed... Well, you, he were, were, you would have won Brumby's games because of him, I would have presumed... Because he would have refereed Australian games, well, wouldn't he? Well, in, in fact, I remember a game in um, in Auckland in 2000, a very long time ago, but uh, the referee on the day was a guy called Tapa Henning who pulled his hamstring just before halftime. We were down 19-0. We, <laughs> and Kaplan was the Kaplan was the, uh, the the touch judge. Right. So he took over refereeing the game. We won the game 23-19. <laughs> so I've only got good things yeah, to say Jonathan from Ka- Jonathan Kaplan. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, I remember once being invited to a... Um, a Waratah's lunch, and I think IBM might have been the sponsor in those days. And, uh-huh. and everyone was being so, you know, really respectful about so many things. I just said, how can you guys just be respectful about Jonathan Kaplan? Like, inexplicably, he, like, all referees make mistakes. And I've got to say, for my sins before I 
lecture at university then ended up in the media i used to teach at sydney grammar school and i coached the second 15 uh-huh. yeah. and uh and and I, re- I always remember being so frustrated at the referee's decision particularly when you're teaching at grammar you can't afford any mistakes because you know you're playing joseph and joseph you've got three teams in in the opens they've got 25 teams all that yeah. sort of stuff. and uh, but one day uh you know a game between the first and seconds i actually had to referee and i realized how damn hard it is it is a very difficult job it is and look there's there's one thing that's unique about rugby i think it remains probably the last of the games that still calls its referees sir yeah and there is a level of respect that we show towards referees as much as um they they can at times um inconsistent inconsistent of course they're human beings um but it is the great part of the game and and i have fundamentally always adhered and tried to adhere maybe is a better description to the to the concept that the referee is the sole arbiter of um fact and Mm. and time in the Mm. game we we treat them with respect we call them sir and it's a part of the fabric and and i I think i think in the perfect world rod um fanatical rugby supporters would would love a referee to be consistently Wrong or consistently right. As long as you are on both sides, you can live with it. When it just seems apparent that they're always <laughs> inconsistent to you, that's when you really hate it. Mm, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So I, 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 the more I talk to you, the more I know the questions I have to ask. And I've always been driven by what do my listeners or my viewers want me to ask? And so the more I talk to you, the more I need to ask questions. What's going wrong with Australian rugby? How can we fix it? Yeah, and that's a that is a complex question that would take a fair bit of our time yeah, to answer. But in a nutshell, right? You, you, you must say that there's some core things that need to change. Yeah, if I go from the helicopter view, rugby. Um, many many years ago, when rugby was played um, um, widely throughout the the, the country, um, we we had the pick of the best players coming. Yeah. There was only really a couple of sports. Now, what we find ourselves in, in the environment. In, in our world has changed so significantly and rugby struggled to change with it. It's it's looking backwards. It's a rear-view mirror watcher at the moment mm. rather than um, an innovator. Um, and, and that plays out where we have many of these young, great athletic talents who now have access to choose from so many different pathways, mm. one of which is rugby. And if rugby's not in the game, not... Um, speaking and engaging with young men and women in the ages when they're making these critical decisions about what sport they're going to play, the best talent will go where there's not just the the best money or the best um, profile opportunities, but probably um, they will they will chase the thing that um, uh, uh, chases them the most. Mm. And we see that from the other professional sports, whether it's AFL, soccer, basketball, rugby league, they go after young, talented mm. athletes, mm. we need to be in that space chasing for, for the, for the, for the um, opportunities that sit at the top end. We need to get the cream of the crop. We mm. used to get them. We don't as much any longer. Then you've got the whole issues of grassroots and competition structure and all these other mm. things and money, mm. all the other things that sit with that. Now, I, I know it's really hard for you because, you know, at the end of the day, some of the people who are running rugby would be friends of yours or colleagues of yours. But I, I guess because you, you are in business, you know when results aren't good, you have to look back to see what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and, I, and let me give you just a couple of little sidelines that have always worried me about rugby. And I've got to say, I go back 
long enough to when John O'Neill was running the place. And when John first took over, it did fantastically well. Yeah. And there might have been a multiplicity of reasons why rugby did well, like the, the calibre of the talent then, which, of course, you were playing then, weren't you, as well? Yeah. And who was who was the person keeping you occasionally out of the Wallabies? Oh, it could have been Steve Larkham or yes, Tim right. Horan. Some of the greatest players <laughs> of all time. But they but they all were always wise enough to have you on the bench at least and you got some and – you, and you were a great player. But I remember you were always up against some fantastic players. So the talent was there. Yeah. Now, and we've seen it only this week – there's a, a young player, uh, is he at Kings? Yeah, Kings. He was chasing, he's, he's now gone to South and rugby was chasing him. And it seemed to me that, okay, rugby league has more money to throw at these players, but rugby league can never offer the career paths that are there for a young guy like that. Yeah. And I, I just wondered who was doing the selling to miss out on a player of this calibre because, you know, everything that goes with rugby can be so good for a, for a human being's future where rugby league, and I'm a, a, I am played for the Roosters up until uh, Jersey Flag, yep. so I'm biased that I have sponsored rugby at East Rugby. My son played first grade for East Rugby, so I'm biased both ways. Yep. But I would rather see a young man have a career path in rugby and have all the associations that he can get from it. But it seems to me... Whoever was selling that dream didn't do a really good job of it. Uh, do we need to improve the professionalism of how rugby is being run if we're going to compete against the so professional AFL mm. and the rugby league and the soccer fraternity? Yeah, and there's a lot of reasons to that. And, and I don't the, the young, the very talented young lad you talk about, Joseph Sawali. I'm not certain yet whether he's gone to rugby league. Uh, so let's let's okay. let's see how that Keep plays fingers out. Crossed, yeah. but, we don't get everyone. One of our, one of the challenges in professional rugby in Australia is we've only got four and, and potentially five t- professional teams mm. where our players can go to. In, in NRL, you've got whatever it is, 18 mm. or 20 or whatever the number is. So yeah. there's, there's far many there's, – there's a lot more spots. So we mm. have to be very selective around the players that we choose because there's only – let's imagine in those four or five teams, there's – each year there's a – attrition rate of about eight players so you've you end up with 30 or 40 spots that you might need to fill mm. we see you know every year hundreds of fantastic players come through our junior pathways and you've got to pick maybe you've got to pick five six ten fifteen of them to come through mm. um so it is, so it is quite selective and we are against the the best talent the dream the the thing that rugby, as you quite rightly point out, can compete better than any other sport is its network, its um, place in society, mm. its association um, and its um, ability to be an international game where people can go and play and make a career and play rugby here in Australia and as I did in the UK or as others do in France or um, in Italy or you know certainly into Japan, mm. Japan and all these other places, now the US. Mm. So rugby has a package and offering um, and a value proposition that f- sits much more outside of mm. just the concept of um, here's a check to play every weekend yeah. on a Saturday afternoon or a mm. Sunday afternoon and that's what we give you. So that is a dream we need to sell to young men and women and we are mm. and, and and I know that our organisations are. We've seen, we've seen a great um, number of these very talented either schoolboy players from Two years ago, and our under twenty players who were very, very competitive lost the final of the under twenty world champions um, world championships last year by merely a point. 
um, against France. They beat the New Zealand under-20s. This group of players mm. are very talented, and mm. it's our most talented group of players coming through since we had the Quade Cooper, Will Guinea, David Pocock, James O'Connor mm. era of 2007 yeah. and eight. these young guys mm. who then went on to play mini tests for the Wallabies, Kirtley Bill as well. Mm. We've got a group of young players now who are very good. They're secured in rugby. And I'm quite um, optimistic about um, this group developing over time. Yeah. Uh, so something that a lot of, I guess, non-experts in rugby, but may well be fans of rugby, uh, which they can't get, is how come a country of New Zealand size can consistently produce fantastic rugby teams, both at the national level and at the provincial level as well, I sometimes come back and say, well, I think they actually have more rugby players playing rugby than we do in Australia. And also yeah. they don't have any competition, really. Everyone wants to be an all-black. Yeah. Um, so, Rod, is it, are there any other insights you can add to that answer? Well, well I think there's absolutely that. Culturally, the, the fabric of the all-blacks is stitched very deeply in the yeah. DNA yeah. of any Kiwi. Mm. Um, they... It, it is their national sport. They and, and there's a whole range of other metrics that sit around that. Their GDP is often mm. um, closely closely correlated with the success of the All Blacks. Mm. When they're up, they're up. When they're down, they're down. Yeah. That's how deeply um, embedded the All Black culture is in New Zealand. Um, and, and I think we don't we we compete, of course, with four different ball sports in winter here in Australia, which makes it very um, you know a, a much more challenging. Um, competitive environment. Yeah. Um, New Zealand also have a fantastic um, um, Indigenous population with their Maori population yeah. who have been wonderful rugby players there. Yeah. They're, um, How do those big guys run so fast? Yeah. Like, like when I play footy, the big guy was big. Yeah. He didn't run 110 too, but no. they can do that. They can and, they've, <laughs> and, and you know, that, that section of their population has been fantastic. They've got, you know, a lot of um, Pacifica and Polynesian players who have, 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 have located in there for, 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 you know, not not to be necessarily rugby players, but for family reasons, yeah. work They've, reasons, work yeah. reasons, all those things. So you've got this wonderful cultural mix of people mm. who are very passionate about their rugby, yeah. um, and and it's um, you know here in Australia we see um, again. Um, you know, probably not as we just don't have the depth of talent that produces itself over there time and time again. Yeah. So to to be competitive with them, we have in the past bought rugby league players, and I, I think they are all good players. But I guess you would have noticed this: rugby and rugby league are two different games, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. And those guys were good enough to adapt and become very good at rugby, but they weren't game changers like. Israel Folau was. He was one guy, I think, who became a game changer. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he had the, the team around him. If the team was of the calibre of George Gregan's era, throw Folau into it, well, we would have been unbelievable. Yeah. Um, do we need to become really good pickers of players to compete against New Zealand? Because we need to have nearly... 15 world-class players to beat the All Blacks, don't we? Uh, there's no question about that. You've got to, There's a couple of things that underpin that. One is the, 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 the structure of 
all of the things that feed up because as, as you quite rightly point out one superstar in a team doesn't necessarily mean you're mm. going to win mm. it gives you opportunities to be better but you need to support superstars and, and there are in every sport there's a couple of superstars I mean if you watch the, the great Michael Jordan documentary mm. you saw the influence one single player had on that team it actually didn't really matter who was around him mm. as long as he had a yeah. good enough group around him he could win championships now yeah. rugby and sport is like that fantastic players supported by other very very good players mm. creates a um, a real um, environment for aspirational behavior mm. um, we need to develop the 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 base the foundation of our game both at you know at grassroots at schoolboy at club and our game is largely rugby is a game and its histories the foundation sit in clubs and schools that's where our foundations lie and without a doubt the adage that you've got to build solid foundations to be able to put something of substance on it we need to do that and do more of that we will then find with great foundations these very talented players and they might be league players what we see now is young athletes talented athletes are multi sport multi-discipline mm. people yeah. they at the age of 15 16 they could choose league union afl basketball yeah. that's just the nature of them mm. we have to be in that um, conversation at that age mm. so that they choose you know we get our fair share yeah do you think we need to um be lucky enough to find um a, a magnetic leader like the way the kiwis their coaches yeah, you know, Hanson clearly has that kind of impact. And I thought you and Mackenzie had it um, yeah. until he had an issue, which unfortunately I don't think was handled all that very well. But you and seemed to do very well with young players. He got a super um, yeah. um, title. Uh, he he led the Wallabies well. Do we need to have a local coach that actually has that kind of charisma that then lifts not only the team but? everyone's support for rugby. Look, I think as, you know, to, to, to use an adage around a business adage, there are, like in coaching, like in business, there are very good CEOs and very good coaches who take any organisation they're with and mm. make it better. Yeah. Um, and there's also poor coaches and poor CEOs who take a very good organisation and make it much worse. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the challenges in rugby is that, Finding and holding on to the very best talent of coaches like you and Mackenzie, who was a terrific coach um, with a great history of success. Um, we, we have to ensure that those caliber of people are kept and developed within the game. Yeah. New Zealand rugby made a very conscious decision after they were bundled out of the World Cup in 2007 in the quarterfinals that they were going to invest in two areas. One area was their coaching. The other area was their skill development. They spent a lot of money, time, effort, energy on trying to upskill their coaching. Mm. And out of that, we, we they kept hold of Graham Henry and his coaching team, of which Steve Hansen was a part. Hansen then went on to be the greatest, you know, to have a win percentage just on 90% as the all-black head coach, the greatest win percentage in the, in the history of um, rugby across, I think it was over 100 test matches, which is mm. just an unbelievable mm. record if you think about that um, over a long period of time. And they've kept that kept that um, tradition going, Ian Foster now taking on. So these, these coaches get developed, you know, consistent environment and get better and better and better that's mm. their succession planning in australia we haven't had the opportunity to embed a group of coaches work with them because we're not we haven't been patient enough mm. We've, we need to understand that patience and, and development of coaching t 
takes time. You've got to put the time in. You've got to invest in them and you've got to keep developing them. Mm. And hopefully out of that, good coaches will produce better players. Well, you, you correct me if I'm wrong again, but my, my knowledge of history can be a little bit sketchy, but it seemed to me you had some really good coaches. Did you play under McQueen? Yes. And yeah. Eddie Jones? Yes, both. Yeah. And then McKenzie was a team player in your side Yeah, as well. I, I played with you. And yeah, I, that's right. I, so you had, so the Brumbies seem to have bred some really good people, including you, Rod, by the way. Thank uh, you. Uh, but so there seems like that was like, to me – the template for what needs to be done, which hasn't been done, and it, it partly explains why Mackenzie got lost. Okay, it was a it was a, an issue that needed to be dealt. With, but you never lose to me an asset of that quality. And yeah. rugby at the senior level should somehow kept him. Same with Falau. Everyone knows what Falau said was ridiculous. Yeah. And and and, the, and leadership should have just come out and said, we don't agree with what he says. We think he's being really silly on the subject. And that should have been it. Instead, we lose a, yeah. a, a player of that calibre. That worries me about the leadership at the top, Rod. That, and, and I've, as I've come from rugby, I know a lot of the guys who end up in leadership are there for the overseas holidays, the piss ups, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And even though they had the best of intentions, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not as professional as they need to be. Do you think that the leadership now is heading in that direction? Well, I think the, the point you raise around the development of your own assets, the internal assets you have in a sport like rugby is the IP that you develop both within players, administrators, coaches, volunteers, and, mm. and, and that network. And if you just think about increasing the value of those assets is really just trying to lift that IP all of the time. And it gets very problematic when you're not prepared to be patient with somebody who might be able to develop as an asset over time. Yeah. And we've probably, if there was a, a, a criticism that could be levelled at, at rugby, and there's lots of them that people throw around, I think a very fair one is we need to be more patient with our assets and mm. let them develop over time, particularly coaches. Mm. We get a coach in, he doesn't have success in two seasons at a super rugby team, we're discarding him and looking for the next one because we think the next yeah. thing, yeah. that the sugar hits the next thing that we need of mm. something new. Mm. Quite often it's not. They just our coaches need time. You know, Mackenzie, who you referenced before, is a great example of a guy who coached at the Brumbies, coached at the Wallabies as assistant coach, went a bit and was head coach of the Waratahs, took them to two finals. The Waratahs didn't win. The Waratahs got rid of him. Went to France for eighteen months, came back within, came to the Reds, and two years later took them from nowhere mm. to winning a title. Now yeah. that's the development in an asset to make someone better. Yeah irrespective of what we think of the, the leadership of the game over the over over time, we're now running in rugby a, a much-welcomed leaner model of operation mm. by circumstance that the game finds itself within and also have a refreshment and a re... Uh, certainly a refresh board, seven of eight board men, new, new board members in the last six months. So this mm. has been a regeneration of... Um, talent at the at the uh, at the board table, and I think that is very um, progressive, and creates an opportunity. And I'm and I'm delighted to see some of the some some of the people who are now in there, including the new chairman Hamish McClellan, who's um, clearly a man of vision, wants to be very active, is not there for the piss ups. Mm. Just between you and me, mm. he's there to create a result, and I'm delighted to see. A real change in attitude of in the direction of Australian mm. rugby, but Peter, if I if I if I said to you, let's get a blank Peter 
piece of paper and we're going to start again and we're going to design a model for Australian rugby, mm. we would never design the model that we find ourselves um, hamstrung by mm. at the moment. The, regardless of the people within the system, we actually need to change the system. That w- What we're doing hasn't worked. We don't need to be Albert Einstein to know doing it more often mm. is, is insane. We, we need to find ways to make that change. I'm encouraged and hopeful that the board of Rugby Australia will look at this opportunity to make some change. Yeah. Well, there's one thing I, I hope they never do is take any advice from Fitzy. Yeah. We read him, but we never agree with him. He uh, comes with the best of intentions, but we can never do what he wants. But secondly, I do think, I'm sure you've read the book, The Book Legacy, mm. and what, what happened to the All Blacks and why they're so good. That's not a bad starting point, but we just need an Australian version of the same kind of quality stuff that the All Blacks were influenced by, I think. Yes, yeah, and, there's, and, and, I, and I think it's very true of any great organisation, regardless whether it's sporting or business or anything or, or any, um, any group, if, if you have um, founding principles that, that, that you abide by and you stick to them and you're mm. consistent, then potentially over time you become better and better and better. And we saw that with the All Blacks, absolutely. Who was your biggest influence in sport? Um, probably Eddie Jones from a coaching perspective. Eddie, um, mm. Eddie, who I, you know, I still am lucky enough to remain in contact with Eddie. He's a terrific fellow. Done well in Britain, hasn't he? he? Very, very well. And there are there are people in this country who are widely critical of of Eddie, which is in some ways, I, I understand the reasons why. Mm. However... What, what you quickly recognise about Eddie, the, the greatest thing that I could ever say about a coach and the greatest compliment you can p- pay to a coach is to, f- to, to look at a coach and to see in someone a person who is only ever trying to make every single one of their players better, is mm. trying to improve them. Mm. And that was the skill of Eddie Jones and remains the skill. Mm. He looks at a player, he analyses and works out what it is that that player needs and he individually tries to influence that player and make them better, knowing that if he can get all of those individual sums to be a better mm. um, part of, of, a, of, a, of a system and, a, and of a team, he will have success as a team. And he's done that in every environment that he's mm. gone to. He's had both success and failure as you need to do as a leader. He's learnt from them. He's always learning. He's a lifelong learner. He, 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 every time I catch up with him, he wants to know something different that I've, that he's never heard before. He says, mm. tell me something new. Tell mm. me something different. What mm. are you seeing? No. He's always after the next thing. Mm. He's looking years in advance to try to be better. Mm. A great leader, brilliant coach, uh, a tremendous man. What, what are you taking from rugby and taking to Invast? Well, I think there are, there are all of those lessons that I think are um, inherent in team and uh, and team behavior that become sometimes they get lost in um corporate life mm. um but you sort of recognize that within um any any corporate environment the 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 underpinning principles that apply to a sporting team can also equally apply to a to an environment and there's been lots of work done in that area of mm. course um my my hope is that um some of my experiences and some of the people I've been influenced um, by will rub off into into a into a corporate world and um, in, in in a role that I play um, at Invas. Invas is a you know a fantastic um, growing business with um, great aspirations here to step into this space as many of the big tier one banks 
move out of um, some of these um, higher risk asset classes. It creates opportunities for nimble and flexible businesses like ours to step in to some of the, the areas that the banks are stepping out of. And what, what, what is probably the, the, the most important profit centre of Invast? Um, institutional um, brokers and hedge funds mm. are our client base, mm. um, providing a combination of liquidity, um, leverage into markets, both FX markets, mm. indexes via CFDs. And, and our, our, our great, a great growth lately has been um, our Australian-based um, professional traders who trade um, the ASX um, uh, traditionally throughout and, and trade them via CFDs. We, we're seeing an, an enormous uptick mm. in through this COVID period yeah. of, of people, people who, at home. People at home who yeah. go, especially with the rain, the races called off. <laughs> yeah. There is a there is a real um, a real and, and there's a real skill set that sits within there. And we're talking, we have a. We have a, a, a client base who are professional trade, you know, yeah. either professional traders or, um, you know, family offices um, uh, um, or you know, self-managed super mm. funds who look to invest. Mm. And it's this is not a we're our our we're not after a mum and dad who's mm. going to punt who's going to put a thousand bucks and mm. and off they go. We're we're after serious professionals mm. um, and institutional clients who. Um, want to get access and short access to, to the market, we can provide that through our CFD offering. Yeah, great stuff. Right, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, mate. And uh, I do look forward to um, you know, hearing you on the sidelines again. I'll be there. Yeah, I'll great. be there. Uh, just occasionally get stuck in the referees. I try not to. <laughs> I try not to. I respect them. Yeah, you're a good man. <laughs> and, and by the way, I, I realise, you know, like the only way you could – do what you're doing at Invas was if you were a five eight. Uh, a front rower <laughs> could never do what you're doing. No chance. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thank you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Peter Switzer Show to get the latest episodes as soon as they're released, just search for the Peter Switzer Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm talking to one of the country's foremost experts on wine. And I reckon when anyone hears about anyone being a foremost expert on wine, they say to themselves, how come this guy is so lucky? Andrew Kaynard, Fine Wine Principal, Pinnacle Drinks, thanks for joining us on the program. It's very good to be here. Thanks, Peter. So, Andrew, I'm sure that's a question a lot of people ask. How can someone actually create a career out of doing something that most of us love to do, drinking wine? <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually quite interesting because I fell into wine, fell into wine rather than really looking to go into a wine career. I was actually going to uh, join the British Army, would you believe? And in fact, I did. And well, I did a thing called an O-type engagement in the in the late uh, 1970s, but it was a complete disaster. And uh, you know, a couple of events, uh, I lost my rifle, and I also lost 20 rounds of ammunition, and it was a complete and utter bloody disaster. And so I had to look for another career, and I landed up going to Bordeaux and uh, working in the cellars in Bordeaux in 1979. Okay, so but had you been a um a wine drinker in the UK before you uh, went to France? Well, not not really. Well, kind of. In that, when I was at school, we used to go and stay with uh, our friends, and, and and one of those uh, friends, um, his name was Andy Gale. 
used to uh, come back with wine from Spain and he used to serve it to us for, at uh, dinner before we had to go back to school on a Sunday on a Sunday evening. And he used to talk about all the wines and I was really quite fascinated by 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 that. Mm. But uh, from a perspective of a family, my, my father was in the Royal Air Force and he always used to talk about wine being lolly water. But my mother's family actually came from a wine-making background um, in Australia. Uh, her, her mother was uh, Lydia Rennell, and uh, they were some of the first vignerons in South Australia. They went there in uh, 1838 and, uh, and established uh, Chateau Rennella. Right. So how did you end up in Australia, or did you start in Australia and went to the UK? No, I was born in I was born in England. My father was in the in the Royal Air Force, so we lived all around the place. But he married my mother, who's an Australian, and so after leaving um, the army um, under a cloud, you know, I was quite um, I was quite underconfident, and I thought I should start something new. So I came out to Australia, right. and just by by you know kind of accident of uh, or, or fortune, I met somebody who talked to me about uh, Roseworthy Agricultural College down in South Australia. And so I, I went and investigated that and landed up going and visiting the dean of uh, the faculty, a guy called um, Bryce Rankin. And he basically said, you've either got to decide today or to, uh, today or um, because, um, you know, the course starts next, next, next week. And so that's what happened. And I landed up going to Roseworthy. And then I found out that, in fact, uh, um, I had uh, a cousin who went to Roseworthy Agricultural College and also, in fact, two cousins that went to Roseworthy Agricultural College first studying wine. So, you know, it's very much obviously wine is in, in, the, in, the, in the family mm. blood. So there was like a magnetic drawing to you and the wine industry. Okay, so you went, you went yeah. to the college and, and one of my guests yeah. who I interviewed only a couple of weeks ago, Stuart Gregor, he went to Roseworthy as well. Uh, yes, <laughs> probably probably one of one of the most interesting uh, graduates from Rose, Roseworthy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. Well, well, Roseworthy Agricultural College is a very very important um, institution. You know, it was started in the, in the eighteen seventies in response to you know the growing agricultural issues in South Australia. So, for instance, you know there was a real problem with rust and in in wheat and um, and you know there was a, a growing you know, orcharding in the Clare Valley, in the Barossa Valley, and of course the wine industry, and they needed more skilled labour. So, um, and uh, they needed winemakers, viticulturalists, orchardists, all that kind of stuff, and farmers. And so that was why Roseworthy Agricultural College was established, and it's uh, it's been an incredibly important uh, institution for, for for South Australia and for the Australian wine industry. Mm. You know, most of the key people who, let's say, over over 50 years old, say, uh, in the wine industry, have all been educated at Roseworthy Agricultural College or possibly Charles Sturt University in Wagga. Okay. So mm. let me position you then, because people have been listening to us having a bit of a chat. Let's position you. Mm. So, so, so what is the position that you hold, um, you know, linked to Dan Murphy's? Yeah, well, so I'm the fine wine principal of Endeavour Drinks Group, and Endeavour Drinks Group owns Dan Murphy's, uh, BWS, and also Langton's. And Langton's was a fine wine auction house that I co-established with uh, Stuart Langton in the eight, uh, in, in the 1980s, mm. and uh, and it's become you know kind of a key fine wine um, kind of retail um, offer now. Although it was an auction business um, before before it went into the Endeavour Drinks fold. So my my role really is um, a fine wine expert within within the group. So I advise the buyers 
I work with the winemakers. I'm involved in imports. I really have quite a, a, a you know, kind of multifaceted role. Um, but of course, that role actually requires quite a lot of um, of kind of underlying knowledge that uh, can't uh, can't be acquired over a, over a, over a few years. It needs several years to get that experience. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, a lot of people will be thinking, "What well, this poor guy has to drink the best stuff to work out what will be you know, sellable in that organization. And that's a fantastic situation to be in. But I also want to explain how you got to that because Langton's was like a, a legendary name in this country when it came to assessing wines and all those sorts of things mm-hmm. that you used to do. But also, you, you, you actually created a... Uh, internationally uh, respected uh, documentary where you even were, were able to get Russell Crowe to be your narrator. So explain to my, my listeners how you what, what that film was all about and how did you get Russell Crowe to be your narrator? Yeah, well, so um, <clears throat> as a side project, you know, one of the things that I had been doing for quite some time was uh, going to uh, Bordeaux to assess the, uh, the vintage every year uh, in in early April, and I'd been doing it for for quite a long time because um, uh, we're going right now back to to uh, 2011. But I'd also been going into China a lot and seeing what was happening into China and the, the extraordinary demand for Bordeaux wines in China. And um, just by by accident, um, I was on my way uh, to um, to Europe, and I, I bumped into. Um, a person called Warwick Ross, uh, who was um, who was a filmmaker, and made the the Young Einstein, you know, kind of things with Yahoo Serious many mm. years beforehand. Yeah. And he happens to be a vigneron, and I'd met him at a dinner party, you know, before that, and we just bumped into each other. And uh, he was talking about, you know, the wine industry and all those kind of things. And I was saying, you know, there's a there's a real uh, opportunity here to to um, make a film about. Uh, Bordeaux in China, because, um, you know, Bordeaux wines are, are increasing at a phenomenal rate, um, and, and the Chinese are, are buying it, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as if there's no tomorrow. And I was just saying, if the next vintage is a really great vintage, which I think it will be, I think we're going to, it, it, will, it, it will come to the point when, when, you know, we'll get to record prices. But I also think that we're in a bubble, and uh, and I can also see a spectacular crash. Um, so you know, I think this will be just make a great documentary. And so Warwick, um, you know, kind of we, we talked about this, and by and absolutely by chance, six months later, I was on my way to Hong Kong um, for for a wine wine expo, and uh, and he was on the same plane again, and uh, we talked about it again, and that uh, and after that. You know, the whole project started to to um, come together, and uh, you know, he was saying, "Well, you know, normally it takes you know a year to get the finance and stuff like this." And I said, "You've got one chance to do this film; otherwise, there's ne- never going to be a chance again." Because, um, you know, this is this this next vintage now looks as though it's going to be a, a great vintage, and in Bordeaux, a double great vintage has not happened since 1899 and 1900, mm. and and so you've got that whole thing happening. And so he said, all right, well, let's, let's you know, he, I mean, he thought about it and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously, you know, knew all the risks and stuff. And so we, we assembled a team within five weeks and we were all in Bordeaux and we were, were making the film. And the Russell Crowe connection um, really was as a result of, uh, con, you know, kind of contact because 
um, the um, one of the producers, um, Robert Coe, um, he knew um, knew Russell Crowe, and uh, and in fact, we actually made the film with another narrator because um, because uh, uh, we didn't really know whether whether Russell Crowe would be able to do it. And really, funnily enough, he was actually filming um, Noah uh, in um, in in um in the united states and uh and the, and, and uh, ironically the set of noah got flooded out so he phoned and said i can do it right now you need to to you know he, he rushed up to a uh, studio in new york and and did the narration in one one go apparently mm. um you know so a remarkable a remarkable um talent is uh, russell crowe and and he really did give that kind of hollywood gloss to it yeah. The documentary and 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 it you know it it was a fantastic experience. Absolutely loved it. In fact, we've made another film um, yeah. which comes out uh, at the end of this this um, year, uh, which will be called Blind Ambition, which is about four Zimbabwean sommeliers competing in the World Blind Wine Tasting Championship. <laughs> and that's with 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 the same team. But uh, I'm sure people will hear about that later on. And and that film with Russell Crowe, uh, Andrew, we haven't yeah. actually given the, the name of it because people still can yeah. see it on YouTube. I know. <laughs> Yeah, yes, you can. It's, it's called it's called Red Obsession, and it's a really great cautionary tale about greed, actually. And you know, on on the other hand, it's also about the shift in economic power from from the West to the East. But ultimately, it's a cautionary tale about greed, and I think it's uh, I think it's something that uh, you know, kind of all business, um, you know, kind of students should 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 watch because mm. it's uh, it's a it's a great story and fascinating story. Um, um, but uh, yeah. And Andrew, and Andrew, not only is there a film coming out, but you've got two books to be released this year. Can you tell us a bit, a bit about those titles and what the books are about? Yeah, so I'm, you know, part of uh, of what I do is I I also have been writing books for 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 several years. I mean, I don't do them all the time, but uh, they come up periodically. And just for, you know, purely um, because of timing and the COVID thing and all that kind of stuff, I've got two books uh, literally being released within three months of each other. And, uh, and I mean, they're fairly, you know, specialized things. There's, um, uh, and the first book is called Imagining Kunawara, um, uh, the story of Wynne's Kunawara estate, John Reddick Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I wrote that book, um, is because I, I've always believed that, uh, the ultra fine Australian wine market, uh, you know, for its, um, internationalization, you know, there are some wines, um, in, in Australia that could be going, could be put on the Place de Bordeaux, which is a, a kind of, uh, um, a stock market for, uh, fine wines, principally Bordeaux wines, um, that is, uh, based out of, out of Bordeaux itself. And is probably the most successful network of selling fine wine in the world. And there hasn't been a presence for Australian wine at all. And I've got a, um, uh, a friend called Tom Porte and Emma Tiampor, both Australians, um, who uh, decided to start um, set, trying to launch Australian wine through this network. And, and one of them um, is, uh, is Wins John Reddick Kunawara Cabernet Sauvignon, which also happens to be on Langton's classification of Australian wine. So it's a really important um, Australian wine and does very, very well here. Mm. And not many people know about it in the international market. And so I decided to write this book because I thought this will give it a bit of um, a, a little bit of uh, a legs behind it um, to show uh, international buyers, collectors that Australia has the most wonderful, extraordinary history that uh, that is just so captivating. And not to mention that we're producing some of the finest wines in the world. 
So Imagining Kunawara is very much about the story of how Kunawara came about. It was really the first region to ever be uh, founded based on scientific principles. Mm. And, um, and, you know, it was founded in the, in, um, in the late 19th century. And its success um, was, um, it had initial success, um, but uh, really between uh, the, the 1890s and 1945, you know, Bill Redman, who was one of the, um, the, the first uh, winemakers in Kunawara, you know, said you could wipe the, the, the failure across the face of Kunawara between uh, 1890 and 1945. But after that, was uh, the post-war immigration, returning soldiers, all of those kind of stuff, and, and Australians um, uh, having a more relaxed lifestyle and demand for wine and all that kind of stuff. And also because of urbanisation, you know, so some of the great vineyards around Adelaide were being pulled up to, to, to um, um, plant housing estates in, instead. So people needed to, to start looking for other regions. And it just happened to be that Kunawara with its beautiful terra rossa soils and, and climate um, was the ideal place to plant uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, and, but particularly Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz. And, and uh, over the last uh, um, over the last sixty or seventy years, it's it gathered a great reputation for the wine. It's a marvelous area for producing wine. Yep. So, Andrew, what's hmm. the other book? And the other book is um, is uh, uh, is uh, the Penfolds Rewards of Patience, which is something of uh, an Australian uh, institution for wine collectors. And it's ba- basically a whole group of uh, people come together to taste all the wines from uh, Penfold's portfolio, including, you know, the whole catalogue of uh, Penfold's grains going back to 1952. And uh, and so we do all the tastings and, uh, and, uh, and reviews. I, I pull together all the tasting notes. And there's all the histories and all of that kind of stuff. It's a bit like um, like an almanac for collectors. It's become a real institution. And that will come out in, in October. It's a bit more compact than the, the seventh edition, which I wrote. But, um, but, it, but it, it's still got an enormous amount of information. And it's a really valuable tool for collectors and, and buyers of Penfold's wine. Mm. So, so those are the two, the two books we're doing. Yep. Okay, well, we look forward to seeing those. And uh, I've got to say, you know, you are an institution when it comes to wine in, in this country. And and so I can't let you go unless I ask you a couple of questions that we mere mortals, when it comes to wine, need to, ask, need to know the answers to. Like, for example, what do we need to know about the good years for wines? Because I, I can tell you one story. My, at my son's 21st in um, 19... Um, no, in the year 2000, in the year 2000, I bought um, uh, uh, a Kunawara um, Shiraz, and, and it was um, Wins Kunawara Shiraz, and I think I'm, I might have gone for the 1997 vintage rather than the 1998 because being a complete amateur and by the way i bought a lot for the 21st so yeah. a lot i bought yeah. and i and i think I, I bought 1997 because it seemed older than 1998 and i think it might have been stuart gregor who came along to that 21st and said switch you should have bought 1998 it was a much better year than 1997 so i, I yeah. it, it is yeah, so what how do we learn what are the good vintage what years are, are the are the best vintages for our respective wines? Yeah, so so the idea of a good vintage is really based on on how well the grapes ripen 
and and you know the balance of the fruit and how it converts into wine and 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 so people are looking at it from a longevity point of view. But with technology and science nowadays, you know, vintages are even out of uh, what you would consider as a difficult or challenging vintage. You know, winemakers are, are able to make some pretty decent wines, and and sometimes. You have wines that are declared as being average vintages in one, you know, one one year, and then ten years later they prove prove to be a hell of a lot better, and and so they're reassessed. And the classic example of that is uh, 1963 Grange Vintage, which was never considered as a great vintage uh, when it was first released, but uh, 20 years later everyone was, you know, comparing it to to the great 1962 vintage. So I think the thing is is that you kind of need to follow it, follow it, you know. A dismal year like 2011, in which there was a lot of disease in the vineyards and stuff like that, still produced some great wines. But um, but you needed to, to to look at the producers and 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 you know that's fairly specialised if you don't know anything about wine. Mm. But my 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 view is is that I don't think people should really get too hung up about it because the reality is is that most people do not keep their wine for a hell of a long time. Most people drink them in a mm. relatively short period of time. Yeah. So whether it's a good vintage or a great vintage, and we, it's very rare that you'll ever get a uh, get a bad vintage in Australia um, um, these days. Um, you, you're really not you're not going to do it's not going to go um, badly for you. Now, if you're investing in wine, that's a little bit different um, because uh, the whole secondary market, wine auction market, all uh, run on on reputation and reputation of the wine producer. Um, reputation for the longevity in the wines and, and vintages, and so you need to be on top of that. But that's very specialised, and the average consumer doesn't really need to worry about that stuff. Okay, now here's the hard question. I know you know the greatest Australian wines, and some of them would be great prices, but what what do you think is the best wine dollar for dollar in Australia? Well, I have to say the wines that I really, really enjoying at the moment um, is, uh, are the Grenache wines. Um, which are kind of uh, that's a great variety that was brought out to Australia in the very early days. In fact, a lot of it was used for fortified wine production, yeah. um, but it uh, but it was really suited to to the Barossa and the McLaren Vale. And there's one wine that I really love, which is the Yangara um, Grenache, uh, which I buy frequently because I love it so much. Uh, and it's it's about thirty thirty dollars. Now I have to say to you that you know to produce fine wine, it actually does cost money you you know if you're buying you can buy commercial wines under under 10 under 15 and then there's some very very good wines that are very gluggable and drinkable but what i really love about wines that, like the angara that i'm talking about is that they have this what i call venosity which is this freshness and attack on the palate that uh, that just is you know just salivating and, and just absolutely delicious to drink mm. now andrew if anyone wants to get you know up close and personal in a digital kind of way. Is there a website they should go to? Um, for me, no. I, in fact, I've, I've rather kept away from all of that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I've certainly been thinking about it. But um, I've rather kept away from it largely because of what I do. You know, I'm moving around all the time and, you know, I work for a large organization. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I find that uh, when people don't know where I am, it's always a very good thing. So, um, <laughs> so, so I don't really do it. But in fact, you know, because I've got, you know, all this information, you know, I've just been writing a history of Australian wine, which is, 
which has become a monster. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was just a small project, and I'm you know kind of a, approaching 160,000 words on this. Uh, the, you know, on the history, I, you know, I've got to find a place to park everything. So <laughs> I, I'll do it soon. <laughs> Okay, well, Andrew Kayard, it's been a great pleasure uh, talking to you and uh, I'm sure people who are wine enthusiasts will look forward to the release of your books uh, later this year. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. All the best. Take a free 21-day trial to the Switzer Report at switzerreport.com.au slash subscribe. Well, with a big percentage of the workforce now working from home, the question is, what kind of liability does an employer have if something happens to his or her employee uh, when they're in the home? To answer that question, we have the national WHS manager, Drake International, Steve Fletcher. Steve, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, obviously, this presents a lot of challenges for companies to work through, so uh, you know, both for the employer, the employee, and obviously, you know, the wider community as well. Steve, I guess th- there has been work done on this sort of thing before because there has been a, sm- a much, much smaller percentage of workers working from home. Ha- has there been a, 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 a number of sort of case law examples that give us a bit of confidence to know how this all works in terms of the legal responsibilities if an employer has their employee working from home? Yeah, obviously with the COVID situation, uh, there's not a great deal of case studies at the moment. Uh, But as far as the employer's responsibilities are concerned, yeah, it doesn't really change the fact um, that they need to manage potential hazards and risks at the workplace. Uh, and obviously now that people are working from home, that also extends to their home. So it is a little bit different to managing the hazards and risks from a normal workplace. Mm. Uh, so there's a, a lot of other things that need to be considered. Uh, at this point in time, um, have there been any notable incidents where someone actually has been hurt at home and an employer has been um, charged with uh, the responsibilities associated with, say, an injury or something like that? Uh, Not that I'm aware of. Uh, We did have one of our workers working from home. She actually fell down some stairs while attending a meeting, like a video meeting. Um, So fortunately, she didn't result in any injuries, which was a good outcome, but that could have potentially exposed, you know, the company to a workers' comp claim. Uh, and then we would have had to manage that like we would any other normal claim. Mm. So, therefore, is it is it important that an employer actually physically checks out the home work site, or should they maybe provide a, a checklist of things and ask the employee to make sure they're aware of what needs to happen to ensure that it is a safe home workplace? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like they do have responsibilities, you know, under the WHS Act around identifying, uh, assessing and controlling risk. Uh, and that also extends to the home environment. Now, with workers working from home, it does become more complicated 
because A, it's a person's house, uh, and a lot of companies find it's intrusive to sort of ask those sort of questions. Mm. But in the home environment, you know, there's like just having additional computer cords, and even pets and children can also create potential tripping hazards. Mm. Um, you know, there's people, like I said before, walking downstairs that, you know, that's a, a potential fall hazard. Uh, but the biggest thing that I've seen is people's houses aren't really designed you know, economically. Uh, it's a, a significant risk of you know, potential muscle injury. So that's probably the biggest challenge that a lot of companies need to sort of consider. Mm. Um, and our recommendation is you know, we need some really strong policies, procedures and systems in place. And doing a simple checklist of a house uh, that does provide some sort of you know, level of identifying these potential risks. So it is a really important factor of this. Mm. I, I was just thinking, you know, you know, we are an employer. Fortunately, I don't have people um, working from home on a regular basis. But I guess if I was in that sort of situation, it wouldn't be a bad idea to get your employee to use their mobile phone and actually create a video of the actual workplace um, where they're operating at home and even just, you know, video the whole home so someone can have, have a look and say, well, hang on, that's a potential hazard there and all that sort of stuff. When it comes to, I guess, uh, any any legal implications, an employer just really has to show that they've cared enough to make those kind of inquiries, um, don't they? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, now, Unfortunately, you know, there is challenges around that, but, you know, with these days, we've got things like Teams and Zoom and all of that sort of thing, mm. plus the mobile phones. So definitely anything like that is helpful to an employer. Um, but if that can't be facilitated, just having that, you know, very simple checklist uh, that runs through any potential hazards that you know, people might encounter during their work, mm. Uh, that would all be beneficial in managing you know, potential workers' complaints. Mm. What about data breaches, Steve? Um, I guess some businesses, you know, need to be concerned that you know, data that once upon a time was in the safety of the business is now floating around the suburbs of, of Australia. Is there any advice you'd give there? Yeah, it's really difficult uh, to manage, you know, all of that data privacy. Um, Again, it comes back to you know the company having very sort of robust policies around that, um, and also looking at their IT requirements as far as you know, firewalls and sort of protection around you know, sensitive data that they're keeping. Uh, very tricky to to achieve, obviously, with everyone working from home, uh, but it is definitely something the businesses need to think about. Well, I guess given your position. Which I, WHS, I'm sure is what is it workplace health? Yeah, workhouse safety. Safety, yeah. yeah. Um, given that, you must have been. Well, there must be some conversations at Drake International around going forward. Um, what will there be? A lot more employees working from home, and I think. People are guessing that there will be, but what's the professional view from a business like yours that's responsible for, for you know, finding work for people? What are you guys expecting in relation to um, the percentage of workers that be working from home? Yeah, I definitely think that's going to change moving forward. 
Mm. Uh, and I think the COVID situation has helped employers identify that they could accommodate some flexibility within their, their workplaces. Mm. Uh, and that, that might involve you know people working from home for a couple of days a week. Mm. Or it could even be that they just uh, have more flexible working arrangements. So I'm expecting that it will change. Um, obviously, in some industries, that would not be possible. Mm. Uh, like in an office environment, for example, that would be very easy to achieve. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Steve, is there anything else that people need to know? Because I would say there's a lot of employers out there who haven't even thought about the legal implications of their workers being at home. And I think some of them would even think, well, I didn't send them home, the government did, so if anything goes wrong, I'll be blaming the government and suing the government. But I think that would be a very difficult thing to do. Yes, that's right. And that, that is a common assumption. Mm. Uh, but, you know, the COVID situation is all about trying to keep everyone as safe as possible, obviously. Uh, and unfortunately, the employers do have a lot of responsibilities around achieving that uh, and obviously around the compliance aspects as well. Mm. Um, but, like, I guess the biggest difference at the moment is, you know, even with COVID, uh, there's a lot of potential for workers to lodge claims. Um, but it needs to be directly linked to the work site. Mm. Uh, and we're finding that you know, it's going to be really difficult to navigate through that uh, to establish that direct link, you know, apart from obviously the healthcare industry. Mm. Uh, so that is one of the changes that companies need to deal with. Um, but then again, like we were talking about earlier, uh, with all of the other potential hazards, they, the company or the employer does have an obligation to ensure that their workplace is as safe as possible um, and obviously having compliance documentation around that. Okay. Steve, if people want to know more about what you guys have on this subject, what's the best website to go to? Uh, just the Drake International website. Mm. We've got a lot of um, COVID-related information, uh, a lot of safety information up there, and there's there's some numbers on there that we can like definitely – assist people if they're struggling with meeting these compliance obligations as well. Mm. Um, but, yeah, if, like, just the Drake International website would be the best one. Oh, great stuff. Thanks for joining us on the program. Lovely. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Steve Fletcher from Drake International. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week where we go looking for the sort of people who will tell you stuff that you really need and want to know. I'm Peter Switzer. Talk to you next week. Time! Time! Time!